Hello, and welcome back to Sinister Sisters. I am Shrimp, and this is Cat. Hello. And we are your hosts of this podcast. It's True Crime Tuesday, which means I am going to take you through a story today of a true crime case that happened. The season, like subject i suppose is devious duos so we're talking about people who kill in pairs or i mean do devious things in pairs devious depravity duos yes <laughs> <laughs> um today we are talking about the hillside stranglers who were two american serial killers who terrorized los angeles between october 1977 and february of 1978 Follow our Instagram at SinisterSisters.podcast, TikTok at SinisterSistersPodcast, find us on YouTube also at SinisterSistersPodcast, and email us, and email us at SinisterSistersPod at gmail.com. Heck yeah. Today's episode was again uh, suggested by generic boy name. He do be listening to the crimes, so. Heck yeah. Have you heard of this case before? I have not, no. Nice. As per usual. As per usual. Well, I like it better that way, so I'm not like telling you a story you already know, so I can get your legit reactions. That's true, yeah. So, this case is kind of confusing, I find. I might just be illiterate, but um, <laughs> it's confusing because there's like so much information known and spoken about. So what I've done is I've broken it down into victims, followed by a profile on each killer. Then we will talk about the MO and how the crimes were committed. And finally, we discuss trial and aftermath for each murderer. Okay. There will be photos and things in the case file on Instagram, as well as like on the YouTube video if you watch that. Um, I do want to mention that the case files have nothing graphic or really gross in them. Um, sometimes, especially with newer cases, you know, you can find, like, like really graphic crime scene photos. We don't include that. That is That kind of stuff is not in the case files, and it's not in the YouTube videos. Partially because it's gross, but also because, like, I mean, that's a real person. We don't need to be looking at their, you know. Exactly, yeah. Body, yeah. Um, so what is in the case files is basically just pictures of the uh, people who did it and there's photographs of the victims but again they're not graphic and we also have pictures of locations that are important to the story but again they're not graphic they don't have like blood in them or anything so mm-hmm. nothing yucky and nothing that would that we think could be disrespectful to victims yes okay content warnings for this episode are strangulation murder rape graphic descriptions of bodily harm and suicide this case when i was researching it i found it pretty heavy i think just because there's a lot of information that's known um so please listen with discretion and feel free to click off as always as always as always so as I said, these cases took place in the 1970s. 
um, the late 1970s, but in the United States, the 1970s are known as the serial 70s because there is a lot of instances of serial killing happening in the 70s and nobody really knows like fully why but I think there's a lot um a lot of weight being put into the idea that um people came back from the world wars and then had a bunch of children and then didn't Mm. like treat those children very well because they had you know PTSD or other like things crosses to bear um right and that kind of ended up in a lot of could have maybe ended up in a lot of serial killers so intergenerational trauma yes intergenerational trauma so as i said we're going to start by talking about the victims the hillside strangler murders began with the deaths of three sex workers who were found strangled and dumped naked on hillsides Um, in the northeast of Los Angeles between October and early November in 1977. Mm. The first of these victims was Yolanda Washington, who was found on a hillside near the Ventura Freeway and was likely strangled to death, as faint rope marks were visible around her neck, wrists, and ankles, and she had also been raped. Mm. On November 1st, so the reason why we're going into detail on these three cases is they were the ones that made this case into a serial case. They were originally linked and in the 1970s they were linked and police believed it was a serial killer. And they, Mm. um, so that's like why these three are specifically important. On November 1st, 1977, police were called to Alta Terrace Drive in La Crescenta, a neighborhood 12 miles north of downtown Los Angeles where the body of a teenage girl was found naked, face-up on a parkway in a middle-class residential area. The homeowner had covered her with a tarp in the early morning hours to prevent the neighborhood children from viewing her on the way to school. She had ligature marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles, again indicating to the police that she was bound and strangled. Her body had been dumped, indicating that she was killed elsewhere. Police also found a small piece of light-coloured fluff on her eyelash, on her eyelid, and saved it later for the forensic experts. Hmm. A coroner's report further detailed that she had been raped and sodomized. The girl, who was described as being, quote, small and thin, weighing about 90 pounds and appearing to be about 16 years old, was eventually identified as 15-year-old Judith Lynn Miller, a former student of Hollywood High School, a runaway, and an occasional sex worker. Oh, so young. Yeah. Five days later, on November 6th, 1977, the nude body of another woman was discovered near the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale. Like Villa, she had she bore five-point ligature marks, so that's on your neck, wrists, and ankles. Hmm. And she also had been strangled and beautifully brutally raped but she was not sodomized the woman was later identified as 21 year old waitress elisa teresa sorry elisa teresa caston who was last seen leaving the restaurant where she worked the night before her body was discovered she was also a professional dancer for the all-female dance troupe, the LA Knockers, and unlike the other two previous victims, she was not a sex worker, drug user, or runaway. 
It's said that the stranglers followed her after she was seen driving home from work, pulled her over on the street she lived on, presented a fake police badge, and told her they were detectives. They then handcuffed her and told her they needed to take her in for questioning. Nine more victims were later murdered with the same MO, and they were Jane King, who was 28, Dolly Scepter, who was 12, Sonia Johnson, who was 14, Christina Weckler, who was 20, Lauren Wagner, who was 18, Kimberly Martin, who was 17, and Cindy Lee Hidspeth, who was 20. The last two, Karen Mandick, 22, and Diane Wilder, 27, were killed by only one of the perps in this case, whose name is Kenneth Bianchi. We will get into him in a minute. So originally, it was initially believed that the crimes were committed by one person, that only one person was responsible. The police, however, very early on determined from the positions of the bodies that two criminals were working together, but withheld that information from the press. I don't really know how they figured out that it was two people based on the positions of the bodies. The only way I can like, like think of that myself is that because they were found on hillsides, it would be harder to like physically move them up there. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure. The perpetrators were eventually discovered to be cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono Jr., who were later convicted of kidnapping, raping, torturing, and murdering 10 women and girls ranging in age from 12 to 28. Angelo Buono. Okay, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. It's B-U-O-N-O. Buono. And he's an Italian immigrant, so was born on October 5th in Rochester, New York, to first-generation Italian immigrants from San Bruno. He developed an extensive criminal history, ranging from failure to pay child support, grand theft auto, assault, and rape. In 1975, when Bruno was 41 years old, he came into contact with his adopted cousin, Kenneth Bianchi. A self-described ladies' man, Bruno proceeded persuaded Bianchi to join him in pipping out two women he had been holding as prisoners, basically. Not too much is known about, like, his actual childhood or how he was treated or anything like that. Um, There is more known about the second um, perpetrator, which is Kenneth Bianchi, who was born on May 27th, 1951, also in Rochester, New York, to a sex worker who gave him up for adoption two weeks after he was born. He was adopted in August 1951 by Nicholas Bianchi and Francis Cicliono Bianchi and was their only child. Kenneth was deeply troubled from a young age and his mother described him as a compulsive liar from the time that he could talk. He would often fall into inattentive trance-like daydreams where his eyes would roll into the back of his head. From these symptoms, a physician diagnosed the five-year-old Bianchi with petite mal seizures. He was also frequently given physical examinations by doctors because of an involuntary, involuntary urination problem, which caused him a great deal of humiliation. Of course, him. Yeah. Bianchi also had many behavioral problems and was prone to fits of anger, 
Francis responded by taking him to a psychiatrist multiple times, Francis is his mum, with Bianche being diagnosed with a passive-aggressive personality disorder at the age of 10. Wow. Bianchi's IQ was measured at 116 at the age of 11, but despite having above average intelligence, he was an underachiever and was moved twice from schools because he failed to get along with the teachers. Francis described him as lazy, and his teachers claimed that he was working below his capacity. Um, Passive-aggressive personality disorder is no longer a thing. It's basically, the symptoms are basically just grouped in with, like, some other kind of personality disorder. It's not named anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So after Bianchi's adoptive father died suddenly from pneumonia in 1964, the teenage Bianchi refused to cry or show any other signs of grief. After her husband's death, Frances had to work while her, ton- while her son attended high school and was known for keeping him home from school for long periods of time. Shortly after Bianchi graduated from Gates Chili High School in 1970, he married his high school sweetheart. The union ended after eight months, and supposedly she left him without any explanation. As an adult, Bianchi dropped out of college after one semester and drifted through a series of menial jobs, finally ending up as a security guard at a jewelry store. This gave him the opportunity to steal valuables, which he often gave to his girlfriends or to prostitutes Mm. to buy their loyalty. And because of his many, many petty thefts, he was constantly on the move. Um, This is something that I learned from um, Criminal Minds, but people who end up being serial killers quite often take jobs that give them a sense of superiority to other people, um, like being a security guard or a cop. Okay or in the military. Um, We've spoken about a few people in this series that did time in the military, and it's because it's, like, power for them, right? Right, yeah. So, Bianchi was a suspect in the Alphabet murders, which occurred around Rochester from 1971 to 1973, in which three young girls were kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and then murdered. He was never formally charged in these crimes, but he was a suspect because he worked as an ice cream vendor near two of the murder scenes and drove a car similar to to a suspicious vehicle spotted near one of the abduction sites. He is denied any responsibility for these murders. So, I don't know. He was just known to police. Yeah. And you would deny them. Yeah. You would. Yeah. Bianchi moved to Los Angeles, California in 1976 and started spending time with his older cousin and Francis' nephew, Angelo Buono, who impressed Bianchi with his fancy clothes, jewelry, and talent for getting any woman he wanted and putting them in their place. Before long, they worked together as pimps, and by late late 1977, they had escalated to what would become known as the Hillside Strangler Murders. I hate that. Yes, it's gross. disgusting. It's gross. Really gross. They also had quite a bit of an age gap. I don't know if we clocked that early when we were talking about it. I think it's about 17 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, quite a bit quite a bit of time. Yeah. So, the MO, or how the crimes were committed and all that stuff, Bianchi and Buono would usually cruise around Los Angeles in Buono's car and use fake bandages, sorry, fake badges 
to persuade women that they were police officers. Their victims were women and girls aged 12 to 28 from various walks of life. They would order the victims into Bruno's car, which was one of several retired LAPD squad cars they were able to purchase at an auction and outfit with flashing roof lights to simulate oh. authentic police vehicles. They would then drive to Bruno's home and torture and murder these women. Both men would sexually abuse their victims before strangling them, but they also experimented with other methods of killing, such as lethal injection, electric shock, and carbon monoxide poisoning. Jesus. So they were tortured as well as murdered. They were... Yeah. Some of the women were basically used as, like, like test rats, almost. Yeah, like they were experimenting on them. Yes. Yeah, experimented on and... It's horrible. Very, very not fun. And even while committing the murders, Bianchi applied for a job with the LAPD and had even been taken for several rides with police officers while they were searching for the hillside strangler. So what is a better in than that? Like he applied, he had applied to be a cop a few times, um, one with the Glendale Police Department and then also with the LAPD. But like, Mm. There's literally no other way to know that, no other better way to know that you're not a suspect than being with the police. Yeah, that's true. Yes. So on January 11th, 17, sorry, 1798, on January 11th, 1979, um, while working as a security guard, Kenneth Bianchi lured two female students into a house he was guarding. The women were 22-year-old Karen Mandick and 27-year-old Diane Wilder, who were both students at Western Washington University. Bianchi forced Mandick down the stairs in front of him and then strangled her. He murdered Wilder in a similar fashion. And without help from his partner, Bianchi left many clues and police apprehended him the next day. A California driver's license and routine background check linked him to the addresses of two strangler victims. Shortly after Bianchi committed the 11th and 12th murders, so these very final ones, he revealed to Bruno that he'd gone on LAPD ride-alongs and that he was currently being questioned about the Strangler case. Bruno apparently flew into a rage and threatened to kill Bianchi if he did not move to Bellingham, Washington, which he did in May of 1978. Um, I believe that means Bruno moved to like get away from the vibe mm, I see. because following his arrest Bianca admitted that in 1977 he and Bruno while posing as police officers stopped a young woman called Catherine Law with the intention of abducting and killing her but released her after learning she was the daughter of actor Peter Law which I don't know who that is I don't know what he's in only after the men were arrested did Catherine learn of their identities and what they were going to do to her wow. yes Oof. So next, the trial, detention, and the aftermath of Kenneth Bianchi. So at his trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, claiming that another personality called Steve Walker had committed the crimes. It was believed that he had recently seen the film Sybil, which is about a woman suffering from multiple personality disorders, 
triggered by childhood abuse. He convinced a few um, disassociative identity disorder these days. Thanks. Um, He did convince a few experts um, that he psychiatrists that he indeed did suffer from DID, but investigators brought in their own psychiatrists, mainly someone named Martin Orr. And when Orr mentioned to Bianchi that in general cases of the disorder, there tended to be three or more personalities. And so he promptly created another alias called Billy. Ah. Orn proved that Bianchi lied about having multiple personalities to avoid being prosecuted and tested Bianchi by introducing him to his lawyer, who was not actually present. Bianchi interacted with the imaginary lawyer. Orn then brought in this real lawyer, flustering Bianchi, who claimed that the imaginary lawyer had vanished. I don't really get it, but... I'm not sure what that proves. I don't know. Prior to his actual lawyer's appearance, Bianchi even leaned over to shake the hand of the imaginary one, an action which was referred to as tactile hallucinations that experts explained is an event that rarely, if ever, happens during hypnosis, nor other types of neurological event-triggered hallucination. Orn had never once seen a true tactile hallucination in his career, suggesting that this was a complete fabrication. Eventually, Mm, Kenneth Bianchi pleaded guilty in order to avoid the death penalty. Wow. So this movie, Sybil, came out in the 1970s, and it is believed to have been the reason that a lot of the serial killers in the 70s pled that they had in, that they were insane or used an insanity plea um, yeah. because it was like a way out, I guess. There was... Ted Bundy tried it. Jeff Dahmer yeah. tried it. Um, someone else tried it. There is a documentary on Netflix about Billy Mulligan, who mm. was the first, I believe, in America to use this disassociative identity disorder, um, like, reasoning that he yeah. didn't commit the crimes and it worked. It was, he actually did mm. have DID mm. and... It was, like, he was one of the first that it actually, he wasn't using it as a way out. It was an explanation for him. It's an explanation. Fun fact, though, people often, this is based in Canadian lore, I suppose, specifically, but people often think that um, that mentally ill, like, not responsible is an easier sentence, and it's better, right? Like, think people often think that way, but... Um, actually, yeah. if you are sentenced to that, you don't receive like a, you don't get a 25 years or whatever. The courts can keep you in those secure psychiatric facilities for as long as they deem that you need mm. to be there. So, you know, so you could, could be do, forever. It could be forever. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes when you're released, you have really strict, um, rules, I guess, on, you know, taking medications and things like that. So um if you're not like if in those cases where you don't actually have a disorder chances are you'll be in for much longer and when you get out you'll have all of these things that you need to follow along with so it's not like an an actual it's not actually like the easy way out it's not a get out of jail free card it's not no Quite actually literally not one of those <laughs> yeah and prison is more 
Like, I think you're allowed to do more things in a lot of prisons mm. because you're not under a psychiatric hold. So, yeah. you, know, you get like a real blanket instead of a, an anti suffocation blanket and things like oh, that. Oh, and shoelaces, yeah. maybe. Shoelaces, you can probably use pens and things under supervision where Playing you wouldn't cards. be able to. Yeah. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah. That fun is fact. interesting insight. Yeah. That would be a fun episode. Oh. oh. Yeah, he eventually pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty in Washington State because they had right. that at the time. Eventually, investigators discovered the name Stephen Walker came from a student whose identity Bianchi had previously attempted to steal for the purpose of fraudulently practicing psychology. Police oh. also found a small library of books in Bianchi's home on topics of modern psychology, further indicating his ability to fake the disorder. Once his claims were subjected to scrutiny, Bianchi eventually admitted that he had been faking the disorder and he was eventually diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder with sexual sadism. Oh. Yeah. Um, also, fun fact, if you didn't know this, antisocial personality disorder is just what they call psychopaths. Psychopathy. Psych- psychopathy. That's fun. Psychopathy. Yeah. That's fun. It's just the, yeah, it's the actual diagnosis. Mm. In an attempt to obtain a reduced sentence, Bianchi agreed to testify against Bruno. However, in giving his testimony, Bianchi made every effort to be as uncooperative and self-contradictory as possible, apparently hoping to avert Bruno's conviction. In the end, they were unsuccessful, as Bruno was convicted of nine counts of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Wow. Um, in 1980, it just gets weirder. This yeah. guy's life gets weirder. It's so calculating and, to like try yes. everything possible to get away with it. Yeah. Because in 1980, Bianchi began a relationship with a Veronica Compton, a woman he had met while he was in prison. During his trial, she testified for the defense, telling the jury a false, vague tale about the crimes in an attempt to excupulate Bianchi. Bianchi. She also admitted to wanting to buy a mortuary with another convicted murderer for the purpose of necrophilia. She was later convicted and imprisoned for attempting to strangle a woman she had lured to a motel in an attempt to convince authorities the Hillside Strangler was still on the loose. Jesus. Yes. Apparently, Bianca had given her some semen during a prison visit to plant on the planned victim to make it look like a rape-slash-murder committed by the Strangler. So, we should talk that in the 1970s, early 1980s, um, DNA forensic evidence was not the same as it is today. Having Mm. semen on a body is not... Now it is like a direct link to the person who did it. Right. Um, but back in the early 80s, it was not. Um, I believe that they had to have a suspect in mind. So instead of taking the DNA mm. and comparing it to everyone they have samples of, they have to take the DNA and compare it to a particular person because it was all done by hand also. 
Holy. Like they put them in those little spinny things and like measured up the like things. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but it was all <laughs> that done was by the hand. Worst scientific explanation. Of the aquafrubra or whatever it's called. What is it called? I think it's a centrifuge, isn't it? A centrifuge. Thank you. And it spins it, and it like separates the DNA from the from the like babies, and um, then they like have like little cards of like what the DNA sequences look like, and they can compare the two. Of like, this is Kenneth Bianchi, and this is what we found on the victims. So, because he was in prison, they wouldn't have compared it to him. Because he was in right. prison. Yeah. So it would have, it didn't work, but that was the plan. Yeah. <laughs> in 1992, Kenneth Bianchi sued an artist for $8.5 million for having an image of his face depicted on a trading card. He claimed his face was trademarked. He, I don't know. The judge dismissed the case after ruling that if Bianchi had been using his face as a trademark when he was killing women, he would not have tried to hide it from the police. And also, like, you're in prison forever. What are you going to do with $8 million? Like, yeah. Just buy Mr. Noodles cups? And so? Almost like like he was. So weird. Yeah, maybe. Doesn't have anything to do, so he's like, oh, you know what? I'll sue this artist. It's kind of weird. Kind of maybe understandable. Definitely a waste of resources and time of yeah. other people. But um, He is serving his sentence at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Ah. And was denied parole on August 18th, 2010. We have talked about another case of people in Walla Walla, Washington. Yeah. So it's, it's fun to say, but I can't remember who it was. Um, Linda Hazard. Linda Hazard? Yeah. Yes. Walla Walla, Washington. Yes. He won't be eligible for parole again until 2025. So. Pretty old by now, too. Yeah. Like, he's like true. 71, I think, now or something. 70. Yeah. He probably won't get out. We hope. We hope. We really hope. So what happened to his partner, the child's attention and death of Buono. Buono. The legal case against Buono was based largely upon Bianchi's testimony. Deciding that Bianchi was an unreliable and uncooperative witness, the original the case's original prosecutors moved to dismiss all charges against Buono and set him free. The Holy presiding shit. judge a Ronald M. George was like, nah, refused to release him and reassigned the case to California Attorney General's George Dukeman's office. But his trial would become the longest in American legal history, lasting from November 1981 to November 1983. Oh my god. Start to finish, his trial lasted more than 23 months making it the longest criminal trial in California history. The jury heard 56,000 pages worth of testimony from 400 witnesses and was shown 2,000 exhibits. And those poor jurors were subpoenaed that whole time. Sequestered. Sequestered. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant. 
Yeah, like away from Fuck, friends that and family. Sucks. Yeah. Yeah. They probably were. And that's like 23 months is almost two years. But I mm. guess that's the whole trial. So that's like start to finish with everything. So the jury wouldn't have been involved in everything. So oh, it was, but it was a year though. Yeah. The actual trial from November 1981 until November 1980. Oh, it says three, 1983. But yeah, the jury wouldn't have been involved in all of that. Right? I hope not. That's all. Because that's like. Yeah. Imagine that. Like. That's like. Because if you're sequestered, you can't even talk to your family and stuff, right? And you can't read the news. And that's like three years. Yeah. What would you do for Ish. three years? In a two. hotel room. Two years, I guess. Yeah. What you'd have you to just. Two years. But then also you'd lose everything. Like. Mm-hmm. Like. Not only just being able to work, but you can't read the news for a year. Two years. Yeah. Like, what are you going to miss? And, like, your wife might have a baby or something, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know. I didn't even think about the jury being sequestered. I just. Yeah. The idea of jury duty. While it's a great thing, whatever, trial by peers, sounds horrible as, like, a person. I get, yeah. I like the idea of it, but on a personal level, it's probably sounds like not the vibe. Yeah, yeah. I guess it depends on what case you're hearing. It's like some icky murder like this. Like, well, it's typically what goes to jury, right? The more lengthier yeah. sentences and more the gross things. Yeah. In Canada, anyway. I don't. Uh, maybe in the states, it's a little bit different, but I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Um, continue. Anyways, the jury convicted him on nine counts of murder and sentenced him to life imprisonment. With Judge George commenting that he felt a death sentence would have been more appropriate. Um, huh. So he was sentenced to life, no possibility of parole. In 1986, he married a Christine Kizuka, a mother of three and a supervisor of the California State Employment Development Department. He then died of a heart attack in September 2002 while incarcerated at Calipatria State Prison. This is weird. um, Because in 2007... Yes. In 2007, Buono's grandson, Christopher committed suicide shortly after murdering his grandmother, Mary Castillo. Buono and Castillo had married and had five children together, which included Christopher's father. And Christopher was unaware of who his grandfather was until 2005. So he finds out that in 2005, his grandfather is a mm, serial killer. Like one of the grossest ever. A serial killer. And two years later, kills his grandma. The man who had children with him. The lady that had children with him. And is like the reason that he's alive. That's weird. I'm being a conspiracy theorist, 100%. -hmm. But like, that's real, like, if he was like struggling with his mental health or whatever and or this Christopher guy was like not vibing in some way and then he finds out that his grandfather's a multi 
multi-millionaire? What the fuck? Finds out that his grandfather is a serial killer. And then blames it on grandma for having kids with him. I don't know. Weird. That's my two cents. That's it, Nobody knows why. I couldn't right. find any information on the murder. Because he killed himself afterwards, so. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's odd. Pretty wild and definitely something. Last week we were talking about how interesting it would be to have um, um, Leonard Lake be alive again so that we could, yeah. like, dive into their dynamic a little more. I think it would be really interesting to have Christopher Buono be alive again to be able to like ask those questions. Examine. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So the Hillside Stranglers. Very gross. Very. <sighs> yes. I don't think okay. I have anything to say. I'm just I don't, yeah. processing. I don't think I have anything to say. There isn't really anything to say. Yeah. It's just they, tragic. Uh, yeah. And they got what was coming to them, though, thankfully. Yes. That's they true. have faced Paid justice. Crime. Yeah. Yes. Not that I suppose it is really much consolation to fictional families, but at least it's something, right? It's something, yeah. Okay, well, let us know what you think of this case, if you've heard of it before, or any comments you'd like to add on Instagram or um, Instagram, or you can email us, or you can comment on YouTube, or if you're on Spotify, you can send in a voice note. Yeah. Tell us what you think. Let us know. Yes. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.